0: From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Ross Gallagher. Thank you for downloading this podcast, especially you, setting off on that run. Keep going, that PB, it's in the bag. This week, we're talking buy now, pay later, regulation shelved. What does this mean for consumers? Nigel Farage accuses Coots of closing account over values, ridiculous or dangerous precedent? And is rapping about wire fraud a very, very bad idea or just a crime against music? We get into all this and much more on today's show, so let's get to it. But first, a few brief messages, so we'll be back with you shortly. Keeping up with all the noise and news from the world
1: of financial services isn't easy. It's easy to get lost in buzzwords, jargon, and industry speak, so sometimes you just need a quick, human rundown of the biggest stories. Well, you are in luck. Bite-sized is our very own weekly newsletter that takes the biggest news stories from financial services and tells you exactly what's happening, why it matters, and what comes next. Bite-sized goes out every Friday at 11am, so you can enjoy it with a coffee as you wrap up your week. Stay up to speed with the fast-moving world of financial services and subscribe today at 11fs.com forward slash newsletters. That's 11fs.com forward slash newsletters.
0: Welcome to episode 763 of Fintech Insider. I'm Ross Gallagher, director at 11FS, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, I'm joined by my 11FS colleague, Naz Ahmed, uh, general counsel at 11FS. Um, Hey, Naz, how's it it going? It's going well, thanks, Ross. Excellent. Anything uh, you can can share to give our readers a bit of a taste of uh, what you've been working on? Lately? I was working on having a holiday last week. Oh, excellent. So that went exceptionally well, I'm happy to say. I'm really pleased. Uh, And just catching up with things this week. Super stuff. Well, look, thanks thanks for jumping in and for joining us. We also have a welcome return to FinTech Insider for Sophia Winwood, Principal at Anthemis. Sophie, thanks for joining us. Maybe you can give our newer listeners just a little bit of a refresher about, about you and also about Anthemis.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited to be back. I'm Sophie Winwood, Principal at Anthemis. Anthemis are a venture capital fund that focuses on the future of financial services. So FinTech and ShortTech and all relevant adjacencies, we're all massive FinTech nerds. Um, We invest across Europe, um, UK and the US, Um, Investing across multiple different stages, although bread and butter and where my heart is, is uh, early stage investing.
0: Love it. I think you found a safe home, um, FinTech Insider, for FinTech Nodes as well. So I think we're uh, delighted to have you, Sophie. Thanks for joining. And last, but certainly by no means least, we have Malini Cannon, COO of tunes um malini welcome to the show we'll get to your news uh in a little while but maybe again you can just give our listeners a little bit uh, about yourself and about tunes
3: yeah thank you ross first time on the show thank you for having me um And I just realized that you've got 762 great episodes before this because I've only heard a couple, but now I have an amazing library during my vacation to catch up on. Um, I'm a C-suite exco member at Tunes, and I've been working as a commercial and operations head here. But my background is also in corp dev, in addition to strategy and operations. Very passionate about fintech, especially fintech in emerging markets. Worked across payments, micro lending value services. Tunes is uh, a leading cross-border payments infrastructure player. And we're going to talk, I know, a lot lot more about it in a couple of minutes. Uh, So I'll save the best stuff for then. Um, But yeah, we're B2B. We work across 132 plus countries, help to push money in and pull money out of markets and really sort of sweet spot on local payment methods. So think mobile wallets, payment schemes, bank accounts, that whatever's needed.
0: Excellent. Melina, we're so glad to have you um, both, I guess, to talk about um, your own news at Tunes and then sharing your insights more generally. So thanks again for jumping on. And really pleased that we could uh, bulk out your uh, podcast playlist, I guess, for the next couple of years with all of those.
3: Thank you for that.
0: Hundreds of episodes. All right. Um, And with that, let's get into the news. Our first story comes from Sky News with a headline, Treasury Poised to Shelf Crackdown on Buy Now, Pay Later Sector. The UK government is poised to shelf plans to crack down on Britain's buy-now-pay-later industry amid concerns that it could curb the availability of low-interest products. One source, speaking to Sky News, said that a final decision had yet to be taken, but that the Treasury was leaning towards kicking the proposals into the long grass. Such a move would infuriate consumer campaign groups, which have argued that the BNPL sector is in need of urgent regulation by the FCA. In total, well over £10 billion has been lent to UK consumers by BNPL companies in the last three years. Sophie, I'll come to you first on this one, just for a general take. What was your sort of reaction when you read this one?
2: Yeah, I think it's 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 really interesting, and it's never great to roll back on something that you've promised, that you've thought through, and that you have um, you know addressed the industry to provide a solution. There was a lot of work that went into it, there was a lot of um, lobbying on behalf of the ecosystem and, and various different industry bodies, and I think generally was accepted to be the right thing to do if it was done in the right way. Regulation shouldn't stunt technology innovation and growth, but it should always put protect consumers at the heart of what it's doing. And I believe that that is what it was trying to do. I think it it is interesting around you know the lower interest debts because this product is at its heart a cash flow management. Solution, but it, but customers are more and more using it to spend beyond their means. So it would be interesting to understand what they think the actual fallout would be if if Buy Now Pay Later did switch off.
0: Yeah, I I think that I think that consumer picture. I think I think you've painted it exactly right. I mean, I know that um, Martin Lewis and some other sort of consumer management groups and sort of debt management groups have um, penned an open letter today saying exactly Sophie to your point that you know people are actually using this now to manage. You know the, the sort of rising cost of living and actually instead of using it in a way that you know could be considered healthy or whatever in terms of splitting up your payments over time blah 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 they're actually using it more and more for um for sort of day-to-day expenses And obviously over time that becomes a real worry especially in the current climate um malini what do you what do you think about the i suppose you know we've heard that consumer campaign groups have reacted i think quote furiously um do you think they're right in this in this instance
3: yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I was thinking back to an article that was in the FDA, I think back in January, right? So this is almost around the same time and predates a lot of this conversation. And they said that more than 50% of the 18 to 24-year-old age group was going to use a BNPL product this year. And that's amazing to me because I think, you know, you're, you're really seeing people who have no, um, uh, probably no, no clear perspective of whether this is consumer credit or not, but because it's so broadly available and because there's no real credit checks and no multi-account threading happening here, uh, you know, you're starting this wave of, of... So whatever... I think, are our, our personal opinions about whether BNPL classifies as consumer credit or not. I think there is a rapid urgency with which we, we need to see that regulation adapt because um, I, I think we, we're all hearing it, the cost of living crisis has really pushed so many people uh, to go down this path as, as a financing mechanism, which it never was intended to be, in my opinion.
0: So Naz, I guess when I read this one, my, my first reaction was, it's a it's a it's a real show of the, the sort of weak position, I guess, that the government is in at the moment. Um and that, you know, you can have these buy now pay later um providers and all they have to do is sort of threaten to pull out um certain products or exit the market and actually the the, the government sort of operating with one, one hand tied behind its back. What's the the sort of regulatory view on this? Is there a world where this makes sense? Not particularly in my view. I think it's as
4: kind of Sophie Molina have said it, and per the Martin Lewis said, it's an area that is crying out for regulation, both in terms of size, in terms of how it's being used. But I particularly pick up on that point around who is using it, who are generally financially unsophisticated younger users at the risk of sounding patronising. So, I, I mean, frankly, I really fail to see the logic. I suspect it is a reflection of the weakness of the government and and probably some sort of very intensive last minute lobbying. I suppose the only thing I would flag from a regulatory point of view is, you know, if if the reason given was the FCA is overburdened, which I think is a very convincing argument, and they were looking at a different regulatory body then perhaps, but that isn't the reason given. And so I, I struggle to support this decision in any way, shape or form, accepting it's just a rumor for now.
0: Yeah, no, look, absolutely fair. I mean, um, Sophie, there's you know, big players like Klarna, I think in particular, have always given at least sort of um publicly the line that they're quite open to the idea of regulation. And I think, you know, the sector more generally, um, in terms of those established providers, have have that's that's often been the sort of line that they've towed. How and, and and I suppose this is picking up on Naz's point around industry lobbying. How sincere do you think that is?
2: I think with any of these things, the balance of when you're a venture back business, you have to go very you have to grow very, very quickly because that is how you're able to raise subsequent funds and achieve the value rate or be able to grow in or um, justify the valuations that you've raised at and ultimately uh, exit because that is every VC backed company's path. And so there's always this balance between growth and then other you know, considerations and regulatory customer care are definitely some of them. And I think the problem is, as we've come out of this mode of growth of all costs that's happened in the last couple of days and really into a more sustainable, profitable, holistic growth. And that, you know, that the way that businesses operate, that might take a bit of time to change. What you, as a, you know, business leader and CEO of business, you have to do what you believe is best for the business. And if you are threatened to be cut off from a ho- you know one of your biggest um, uh, uh, kind of economies or countries, then you need to do what's in your power to keep operating. However, they have publicly said that they would like to be regulated, and they believe that is right. And I think everyone agrees with that. And so there is a disconnect there. and it, it, you know, and they're asking for proportionate regulation, so starting with a certain amount and then kind of others being pushed in afterwards. But really, if you if you're pro it and then you say you're going to pull out, you know, people are going to realise there's a disconnect there.
4: Having been on the lobbying side of the fence, which I have been in kind of previous careers, uh, you say lots of things. Yes. And withdrawal from market is a typical threat, quote unquote. You know, whether in reality it would actually happen, I think is a very different question.
3: Probably it really benefits them if they participate in the conversation and shape it to a degree, because on the other extreme, when you look at what's happened in Australia, you know, uh, that's the other extent of how far regulation can go with severe credit checks being imposed on potentially like $50 purchases, right? So I think there's there's a way to, to get this right-sized uh, to the age group and the problem statement, uh, and this and the size of, of that individual ticket, uh, and also the number of accounts that we, we might be having with different BNPL platforms. Um, but I I almost feel like it would be I mean just just putting that other hat on that Sophie was talking about, which is that you know w- what if you were that fintech, you almost want want to be there, making the rules, um, and then making them right, right? Because it's almost the 2.0 of this industry that we're about to see.
0: Yeah. I, I completely agree. Look, I think that was one of my takeaways as well, right? Was that at least these providers were actively engaged in the process. I don't think it benefits anybody if we just default to like the old Consumer Credit Act because that doesn't necessarily actually cover this. And I think, Sophie, to your point about proportionate regulation, I I agree. I think it also has to be fit for purpose, right? And I think um, the fact that these guys were actively engaged, I think again, though... My slight concern with how those conversations have happened to date is around who's the voice of the the end user, the end consumer. Um, and Sophia, I'm keen to pick up on the point that you made about the sort of model for success for VC backed businesses. And I guess this is a slightly tricky question, but where's the sort of where does the responsibility sit then for VCs in terms of, you know, making sure that they're investing in companies that are sort of encouraging fair and ethical lending and all of that sort of stuff. And do you think that's, given what you said about the model is shifting a little bit now, do you think that's something we'll see a little bit more from VCs mm-hmm. moving forward?
2: I think VCs should always be focused on that. So I I, I kind of want to sort of level set that, which is there are trends within the industry, which is when it's um, a market, a, a founder-friendly indus, um, market, which it has been in the last couple of years, there are certain governance and structural um, processes that tend to not go out the window, but sort of um, fall by a little bit behind because VCs is desperate to get into the best companies. We've seen this with FTX, for example, and, and not so much here, but it, it's really like the, the word here is governance. So if you have a good governance structure, a, gro- a good board that is, these issues are surfacing, they are being talked about before a regulator you know, is 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 getting involved, or before it's becoming a public issue, then as a board member, as a uh, you know fiduciary responsibility to our shareholders and to the shareholders of the company, we should be reviewing this at all times. You don't want to back a business that's going to be bad for the world, ultimately, because that will not be a good business. Even if it's doing well in the short term, it won't do well in the long term. So, I think it's on it's on everyone, investors, consumers, and on the C suite of the company. To really think at its heart is this business doing good for the world
0: yeah no i completely agree
4: and I, I just just to riff on that theme slightly you know i suspect one of the reasons people have said that they'll withdraw certain products on the market is regulatory overhead and i totally accept that there will be some but again you know i think it's a bit of a a false premise to sophie's points of that will be aimed at fair outcomes for consumers and ensuring fair outcomes for consumers. Now, you know, in most commercial businesses, that's what you want. You don't want people using your product and then hating it and never coming back. So, you know, again, I'm not convinced that kind of a regulatory regime or being subject to a regulatory regime and commercial outcomes are that misaligned actually. I think in, in most places they'd be in sync.
3: And as the fintech in the room, I just want to say that um, while it may sound odd that I'm saying this, regulation is great because it creates barrier to entry, right? So you almost want to be the person, like I said, shaping the rules and then abiding by them and then make it more difficult for for others to, to come in.
4: As someone that used to work for one of the top big five banks, i heartily
0: endorse that. Look, I think... Um I think it doesn't feel like this one has reached its natural conclusion yet. Like as we say, you know, you've got consumer rights groups and debt management agencies and all of that sort of stuff now that are sort of making their voices heard, and it feels like this one's going to run and run. So I think it's one that we'll uh, we'll cover off again, but um, and one that we could talk about, I think, for the duration of the entire show. However, that's not the format, so I am going to move us on. Um, the next story comes from AltFi with a headline. Tunes pockets $72 million at a $900 million plus valuation. So cross-border payments infrastructure platform Tunes has extended its Series C round to $72 million with backing from Visa. The Singapore and London-based fintech powers payments for a range of businesses from the likes of Uber and Deliveroo to global fintechs like PayPal and Revolut. The three additional investors in the extended Series C Visa, Singapore-based global investor EDBI and San Francisco co-investment fund Endeavor Catalyst build on a $60 million round led by London-based hedge fund Marshall Weiss. Um, So look, Malini, obviously great to have you here for this one. Um, so my sort of first question to you, um, why was it important uh, for Toons to extend um, at this time? And maybe you can just give us a little bit um, on the plans that you have for the funding.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think... The last time we raised was in 2021. That was our Series B. And that was when we welcomed Helios, Inside Partners, and Gigi, we, our early investor, doubled down, right? So it's, it, there's been this gap, this natural gap of two years. And a lot has happened in that gap. I think just to give you a sense of what we've been up to since then, we, um, the network has grown 4X since what, what we were two years ago. We acquired two companies along the way, so a French payment company called Limonetic um, and then an AI-based AML platform last year called TukiTaki. And then you mentioned some of our partnerships. I'll just add a few others. Visa, WeChat, Trulair, Alipay, Finastra, et cetera. And we started to expand, sort of really fuel our expansion into Latin, Middle East, Greater China. Right, all of this has only been, uh, I think, proof that there's a lot more to do when it comes to building out that network. So today, you know, we said 132 countries we can send money into; we can pull out money from about 80 of these. That's still not the whole world, right? So we're still well on our way towards that sort of very ambitious and and truly globally serving mission of of being able to get money in and out of places with the least amount of friction possible. So growing the network, expanding and investing a lot more in regionalization. Um, I think just because there's so much, when it comes to alternate payment methods, local payment methods, just to give you that sense, we're about 50 plus nationalities within Tunes and we're only 350 people or so. So I think you have to kind of live it, breathe it to to say that you're relevant to it. Um, And then we've got obviously a lot more MA pipeline, product development, and, and, and potentially, you know, deeper investment in in, in the ecosystem that, that we need to plan for.
0: Wow. I mean, look, it sounds a lot like world domination. That's what I was <laughs> I was hearing. But it's so exciting. And I mean, it's been amazing to watch you guys um sort of through that, I mean, incredible growth cycle that you've just mentioned. What I mean, I guess speaking of growth, what does what does someone like Visa bring to the table, right? Obviously a globally recognized uh, brand.
3: Yeah, no, great question. Actually, Visa, Visa strategy, Visa doubled down on on something called new flows, and what that was was their ambition to capture new sources of money flows that are non-card. We had a natural payout network that was initially. That the first mile of our partnership, which was payouts into mobile wallets that Visa started to explore with us. Uh, And I think when we signed that partnership last year, they were looking at our send-to-wallet capabilities in about 44 countries, reaching about 1.5 billion mobile wallets. Today, that number looks more like 3 billion mobile wallets that we can offer in our network. But we've also had a chance in this process of working with them. We initially it was just that. It was a strategic partnership, a cooperation, to co-create, you know, sort of other product ideas or or think through what could be other ways to leverage each other's network, right? So and I think that's what brought us here, which was Visa saying, you know, they're really excited to bring the send to walla capabilities already to their partner banks and FIs and they have a scale that that tunes that probably would would only dream of having in a couple of years down the line but at the same time I think this sort of embeds our partnership further to say let's co-create on meaningful solutions way beyond what this first leg of that partnership looks like.
0: That's really nice because it's so clearly a, a sort of win-win partnership, right? There's there's clear benefits on both sides. I guess it would be remiss given um, everything that we've heard about sort of down rounds and all of that sort of stuff recently, not to ask you about how you guys have found sort of those those fundraising conversations, um, I guess, in the current environment.
3: Yeah, we we got really lucky actually because we had a lot of inbound coming through. And I think you mentioned a couple, so Visa, We knew them well through a strategic partnership. Endeavor, the Catalyst Fund, as well, our our CEO, Peter, is an Endeavor entrepreneur, and we're actually one of the recognized, high-growth, emerging market-focused companies that Endeavor has been profiling. So I think we we got really lucky because there were a lot of people who've been working with us, know what we're doing, Um, and the category, which is cross-border payments infrastructure, is got really strong fundamentals, right? So a lot of investors have gained confidence and, and um, I think a, a deep interest in studying this category over the past two years. We also, I think I mentioned the timing. So we, we skipped that wave of last year because we raised in 2021 mid-year and then we came back sort of closing two years later. So I think that also helped us quite a bit because we, we never had to go through that cycle. Um, and we've just been really intentional about where we want to grow. So, so that's helped us tremendously to, to stay right-sized throughout the process and not have that wave of, you know, hyper-explosive manpower growth that you had to then pull back on.
0: It's, it's honestly just such an interesting insight um sort of to everything that I guess the journey that you guys have been on, the growth that you mentioned is sort of where you guys are going from here. So I'm so glad that you've come on just to to sort of talk to us about it. Um Sophie, I'm keen to pick up on um Molini's final point about I guess the sort of opportunity space in the the sort of that cross border payment space. What are you seeing? I mean, I know it's 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 one that um has been sort of explored in various different guises, but is it one that you think the, the the VC community is still actively looking at?
2: Absolutely. Um, and firstly, Melanie, I want to say a massive congratulations. Um, it, you know, it's really great to see fintech continue to raise funding, um, and especially from great investors.
3: Thank you, Sophie.
2: Um, yeah, I was. So was, um, I, was, I was actually just on a call before this with an investor who was talking about um, one of the spaces they're really digging into is cross-border payments. Um, Anthemus was obviously an investor in, in Currency Cloud, which exited to Visa. Um, the beautiful thing about cross-border payments is it's so big. The market is so big, um, and it's so broken, um, and so there is space for actually a few big players, which is 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 is, is a great thing that you want to see as a VC investor. Um, and we're seeing some interesting innovations with stablecoin and other, and other kind of areas where really trying to take kind of take costs out and bring cross-border payments into the twenty-first century. The thing that I'm really excited about is once you have this um, infrastructure, which is robust, what comes after that in terms of the businesses that are able to be built on top of that, now cross-border payments are uh, at a lower cost and they're uh, uh, kind of easily acceptable. And one of the areas I really like is B2B marketplaces, um, which are relatively um, new in terms of size. There are a couple of big ones in, in the US, but actually kind of in terms of Europe, that's really nascent as well. And you could see those two industries kind of evolving at the same pace. Um, So yeah, definitely still excited. A lot of activity um, going on in it. Um, And I think we'll see some very big uh, players emerge in the next kind of five to 10 years.
3: And I just wanted to put a data point to what Sophie said about the size of the market. A couple of years ago, when we started framing our thinking, the market was $150 trillion moving cross-border over broken infrastructure. And and we thought to ourselves, you know, 10% of that, there's room for everybody, like she said. Just 10% of that, where does that get you, right? And that mar- market is growing easily 20%, 30% year on year.
0: Yeah, I mean, incredible. And, and actually, as well, when you think in terms of consumer outcomes, of fixing some of those points of friction, and what you'll often find as well is... Um, those people that are um, sending money over borders, you know, can often be your sort of migrant communities, some of your more sort of marginalized and more vulnerable communities. So I think again, sort of delivering better outcomes for those is obviously a great thing to do. Now, as I think Sophie mentioned a variety of the, the different frictions around why this process is broken, how big is is sort of regulation in terms of, I guess, driving that?
4: There are clearly a number of hoops that you have to jump through do I think that they would end up making or breaking, like, around? Probably not. I mean, they probably add to your headaches and your heartache. But I would say it's an, an an acceptable evil, and it would, you know, to our discussion previously, it would be kind of like the Wild West without them. I, I, you know what? I'd probably defer to Sophia and Malini, because they can probably give a better view than I can.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think Nas... On regulation, right, and and I think just to come back to some of the, um, when we frame the problem, the issue with cross-border payments today is the lack of transparency. So you send money to me, cross-border, you're not always sure when it's going to reach and who's bearing the cost. And the cost is formidable. For a small transfer, it becomes almost exploitative or or unable to bear, right? So I think initially we started out with with remittance because there that problem hurt the most. Uh, And also on the other end, for the beneficiary receiving the money, um, it, it was their local payment method was really something that that you, you know, they didn't have a bank account. They were banked. They had a mobile wallet or they had access to a cash pickup point. It's not to say that they had no access. It was just, it isn't something that the Formal financial system had found a way to plug into, right? So, so there is that, and remittances is, is well regulated, I would say, formal the formal side of remittances. So, I think that that's given a very good framework for cross-border payments to then start to explore other use cases. But the use cases that that are really growing fast are gig economy payments and. Uh, like Sophie mentioned, payouts for marketplaces and collections for marketplaces using local European payment methods. And these are all the places where we get really excited, right? Or or Chinese merchants selling into Africa or African merchants selling produce all over the world. And it's the ability to be, I think regulation is is, is great to, to sort of keep all of this in check. Uh, but I think it's the ability to almost sort of then create a little bit alongside it or around it that really gives you that full potential of we should be able to pay and get paid, earn and and, and sort of pay someone the way they would like. Right? That that's that more, I think, optimistic or almost ambitious statement uh, around this around cross-border payments.
0: No, I love that. And it's exactly right. I mean I just struggle to believe that for generations and generations of banking, the correspondent banking model was the best that we could come up with. And you're so right. I mean, when you think about it, Melini, in the way that you've just described, you open up a whole new world of use cases and all of that sort of stuff and other markets and everything else as you just described. Well,
4: I think, I think to that point, I suspect, I suspect it wasn't the only thing relied on, but people were doing things much more unofficially slash with difficulty. You know, I remember my, my dad and my mum trying to send money back to Pakistan back in the day. And it was a nightmare. And a lot of the time, they just end up taking cash with them, which is obviously hazardous and difficult. No, completely agree. And something I don't recommend to people, I feel I should say at this stage, anyway.
3: And, and expensive, right? Or you give it to someone or you wait a bit longer so that you pull it long enough that it makes sense to bear those bank fees. But whatever you end up doing with it, I, I think it just sort of, it's, it's not in, in a world where, you know, it's so easy to send a WhatsApp why is sending money not as simple as sending a WhatsApp? And I think there's lots of solutions trying to crack at it, but fundamentally, the rails are the first
0: step. Yeah, no, completely agree. Absolutely, the rails are the, the, the first step. Look, Malini, just to echo Sophie's sort of congratulations. It's a really exciting time for you guys um, and Will continue to keep a very keen eye on you guys um, sort of moving forward and thanks again for coming on to discuss it.
3: Thank you and appreciate the feature.
0: Excellent. All right, well, we're just going to take a quick pause here and we shall be back with you very shortly. 200 trillion. No, that's not the number of times we've heard the letters AI this year. That's the estimated dollar value of residential property worldwide. The opportunity is massive and the space is ripe for disruption. So why does financial services keep getting mortgage offerings so wrong? Digitizing outdated processes has only led to complex, opaque and exhausting user journeys that make the prospect of buying a home even scarier. The answer to this problem? Understand your customers' jobs to be done and meet them at their pain points with embedded, truly digital solutions. Partner with businesses to simplify and accelerate the home buying process. That's where the future is. Ready to take the first step? Visit 11fs.com slash ventures and let's get to work. Welcome back. Before we get on to the second half of today's news, a reminder to check out the latest episode of our FinTech Insider Insight Show. In our most recent episode, we're asking what lessons have been learned from the financial services in 2023 so far? We recently passed the halfway point of the year, and boy, has a lot happened in that time. Benjamin Ensor is joined by guests from 11FS, Innovate Finance, and 21 to look at the biggest stories of the first half of 2023 and what we can take from them going forward. You can find that podcast wherever you got this one. Now, let's get back into the news. The next story comes from The Guardian with the headline, Nigel Farage claims to have proof that bank closed his account over his, quote, values? British politician Nigel Farage has released documents which he claims demonstrates that a prestigious private bank closed his account because his views, quote, do not align with our values rather than due to not meeting a financial threshold. The former leader of the UK Independence Party obtained a report from Coote's Reputational Risk Committee used to justify the closure via a subject access request. Writing in the Telegraph, he claimed, quote, I believe Coots targeted me on personal and political grounds. Its report reads rather like a pre-trial brief drawn up by the prosecution in a case against a career criminal. The report mentioned his comments about Brexit, his friendship with tennis star Novak Djokovic, and a perception that he was regarded as, quote, racist and xenophobic. The BBC and the Financial Times had previously reported Farage fell below the financial threshold needed to hold an account with Coots. But Farage insisted the bank's move, quote, had nothing to do with my finances and that the report found his funds were, quote, sufficient to retain on a commercial basis. Coots has issued a reply saying, quote, it's not Kootz policy to close customer accounts solely on the basis of legally held political and personal views. As we are recording, the Treasury has just said that banks will be forced to explain and delay any decision to close an account under the new rules. Customers will also be able to challenge account closures more easily, it added. Um, Naz, I'll come to you with your uh, legal hat uh, on this one first. Um, Also, I don't think I've ever said the word quote so many times Reading the book, it was weird. So many obviously. times, yeah. started to lose all meaning. So Naz, look can a can a bank refuse to give you an account because they don't like your political views? Um in in, in essence, no. I mean, I think
4: I really must say I think this is a storm in a teacup with a with a slight kernel of uh, truth. And I would just contrast the outrage on this point with the shrugging of shoulders about buy now pay later. Anyway, so listen, I think. If I take a step back, he didn't meet Coots's criteria of having an account there. Fine. It would have, you know, he was still a profitable customer, but essentially I regard this as a commercial decision for Coots. and they have decided that they'd rather not, uh, bank him. And I can understand why, because you can equally see the Guardian headline in six months saying Coots the queen banker. Banks, Farage, blah, 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 blah. I think what they are obliged to do is offer him a basic bank account. Uh, and so to your question, you know, people do have a right to be banked and have banking facilities. But from what I understand, they did that through offering them a West account. So I, you know, as far as I'm concerned, they've ticked that obligation. Uh, one thing I would say is that I think a delay in the notice period to closing an account is a good idea, just because I think it's a month at present. And that can be a very short time to find another account and sort out all your direct debits and da dads, da. A right of appeal, I mean, I sort of get the logic. I suspect, you know particularly in a high-profile case like this, banks don't take that decision lightly. So I'd be surprised if it led to a change of result that many times. But to me, you know, this is a very simple commercial point. It didn't meet the criteria. Keats chose not to make an exception for him for reputational risk reasons. I can understand why, and they're perfectly entitled to do that.
0: Yeah, and of course, I mean, look, he says that um, he, in fact, does meet the... Um, the various criteria for a Koots account. And I think Coots haven't been all that forthcoming publicly for the reasons specifically why the account was uh, was closed. Are they sort of uh, restricted now, there a little bit in terms of what they can say and what they can't?
4: Yes, I think um, at the end of the day, they still have an obligation of confidentiality to him. and And the fact that he is choosing to disclose things doesn't free that from their obligation. Um, and I imagine they feel quite frustrated because they're getting beaten up and there's not much they can say in return. But uh, I think if they did say more, it, it, it would be wrong. Like They they own a GT and they have to stick
0: to it. No, completely agree. And Sophie, I know um, Rishi Sunak has come out and he said that it's completely wrong that people should be denied access to sort of I think you said basic banking. I don't imagine there's anything about coots that's terribly basic due to their political beliefs. But I guess it depends on, you know, what's actually driving this. Is it his p- political be- beliefs? Is it, as now says, because he's not h- hitting the, the various um, criteria or thresholds? Do you think this has the potential to set a dangerous precedent?
2: I mean, like you said, coots is not a basic bank account and this is a very, uh, you know, exceptional case of, I imagine a large amount of of money being in the account and maybe just being on the threshold. I think that always with this is just having really, really. If you have really, really clear guidelines, internal controls, and um, like limits, it's very easy to say yes or no. As soon as it gets into this grey area, you know, like is Monzo not going to give me bank out because I just I don't drink coffee anymore? Like that's where we get into you know, black mirror world. Um, But I think, you know, like now says, this is, if you take Nigel Farage out of the story and you, you know, and he's sort of hamming up a bit, like, is there anything here? I'm not sure, but denying people public access to a bank account for views really goes against freedom of speech. So let's hope that that is not going to be a continuing trend.
0: I, Completely agree, and actually, I think that's a helpful way to think about it. You take Nigel Farage out of the out of the equation. Are we talking about this? I think that links back now to your point about the the maybe the the media coverage that this particular story is getting versus the buy now, pay later story that we um, that we talked about earlier. And you know, I think look, we should we should sort of um, we should really say that you know, coots have said that they offered him an AtWest west account because he didn't hit those coots. Criteria anymore. They've, I think, come out today and said that that offer still stands if he wants to accept it. So they're not leaving him high and dry. And I think actually that's an important point. Malini, what about the the sort of um, the challenges, I suppose, around banking sort of politically exposed people or or PEPs?
3: Yeah, I think you know. So at Tunes, we're not we're not a bank, and we we don't provide bank accounts. But as a payment services business, we do have controls in place for what we call politically exposed person or PEP screening, as, as we would call it. Uh, and it's in line with industry practices, varies by the licensing framework that you are subject to. And we've gone a little bit over and beyond, I would say, even at Tunes, where we would implement enhanced due diligence where we need to, um, and, and do a lot of regular risk assessments, monitoring, et cetera, right? So I think to to the point that... that, that everyone here on the call was making, if this is a case of, of, of a PEP, uh, you know, that there are very clear guidelines in place and then you can go over and beyond as a financial institution. Um, and, but as long as you're transparent about it, it's clearly documented in policy, people can access that policy, it makes it okay. Where the challenge is where it's, uh, you know, where where this becomes a little bit of he said, she said. Right. Uh, And there's nothing to refer back to.
0: No, completely. I
4: think just, you know, interestingly on that point, um, again, for what what I've read, they had actually moved him to a lower PEP risk category than he'd been in previously. So, you know, it it really doesn't feel like a PEP decision to me, because I think if there had been a PEP hurdle with them, that would have been way more prevalent five, six years ago. Uh, than it is now, probably. Interesting,
0: yeah. And look, I know when you you sort of um dig deeper into this one, I think they did reference like in their report some some links to um some links to Russia, and I'm not. I mean, the the link, the tie into Novak Djokovic in there seems a little bit weird as well. But
4: I, I I think what's important, Ross, is I think the reason they can reference those at that stage is because they're taking a commercial decision and therefore they're thinking about it from a reputational risk point of view. If they had referenced those things to refusing on that West account, they've absolutely crossed the line. Um, But I think given that they're taking a commercial decision, I think reputational risk factors are... Fair game, so to speak.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. You got you got there before me. That's sort of where my uh, where my question was was headed now it's about reputational risk. We do just have a little bit that's breaking on this story right now. So the chief executive of the banking group that owns Coots has apologized to Nigel Farage for his account uh after it was closed. Alison Rose has apologized for quote quote again, deeply inappropriate comments made about him as part of the company's wealth committee. So the bank has now offered, quote, alternative banking arrangements at NatWest, which uh, I think is what we were saying. So not rowing back on the decision, they're obviously clearly standing by the decision, as I suspect, for the reasons that you've sort of described. But obviously, again, sort of underlining that that account at NatWest, that offer of, of an account still stands um, should he wish to take it up. So I think, again, look, we probably haven't um, heard the last of this story. I'm sure uh, there'll be a little bit more out there about this, but... Uh, One that we'll keep an eye on.
4: At the risk of sounding like a way karate, just one, one final point, which is, I think what it does show is that if there is a will, regulatory change can happen exceptionally quickly. You know, when's the story break and how long is it taking for the treasury to make suggestions on actually quite a fundamental change to bank account closures?
0: Three days? No, completely agree. Okay, I will get off my high horse. No, it's good. It's good. It's a useful call out. I completely agree. All right, from there, I'm going to move us on. Uh, our next story comes from TechCrunch uh, with the headline Silvera Banks $57 million to put carbon offsetting on a path to net zero. So, London based climate intelligence startup Silvera has bagged $57 million in Series B funding, led by Boulderton Capital. The Series B is being put towards expansion into the U.S. market, where it's opening a New York office targeting services at U.S. financial services companies and the asset management industry. Founded in 2020, the London-based firm provides data to corporate clients to determine the effectiveness of carbon offsets. Silvera said its goal is to incentivize investment into meaningful carbon offset measures and sustainability. So to find out a little more, we reached out to Alistair Fury, co-founder and CEO at Silvera, to ask, why should financial services care about credible carbon credits?
1: So there are a ton of reasons why financial services should care about credible carbon credits, but two I'd highlight here. Firstly, top-line growth, and second, uh, risk management. So on the growth opportunities, carbon trading project finance of uh, carbon projects, net zero products, like, for example, investment products uh, and insurance. These are all huge growth opportunities. JP Morgan, uh, City, UBS, they've all made public uh, moves in this space over the last year or so. On the On the risk side, well, why should financial services care about the credibility or the quality of these instruments? Well, the climate integrity of any carbon instrument is going to be critical to its value and the integrity of any claim uh, made. The SEC have shown appetite to enforce on ESG, and the CFTC um, had a major convening on voluntary carbon markets just this week. So the the banks, insurers, asset managers, they do need to ensure that they diligence the climate impact of uh, credits to pick up those those growth opportunities.
0: Excellent. Um Melanie, I'll come to you first on this one. I suppose what was your general reaction to this story and then I suppose your thoughts on the importance of having sort of credible carbon offsets?
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you asked. Actually, I wasn't, you know, when I was first going to come on this podcast, I, I didn't think that this would be one of the themes we'd cover. But with the Tunes, we've actually... We have we take a very clear stand on this, uh, and we actually believe that offsetting is not enough. So while I take your point around, um, you know, carbon credits and and how they're very measurable and and clear way for corporations to at least do that bare minimum, that they need to, and then make that transparent and um, and, and make it reportable back to to uh, the governments and and the bodies that we we are accountable to on this front. We've gone one step ahead, and we've actually partnered with and invested in a business called Handprint, where we directly take on regenerative actions. So this isn't credits, this is more us actually doing that end action. So planting the tree, cleaning um, ocean plastic, reforesting coral, or, or clean water projects, right? Um, and, and we aim to do, um, I think when it comes to regeneration, it's Only really works when you fold it in, not just into the fabric of your business as a fintech, but fundamentally in an end customer value proposition as well. So that's sort of our goal state where we we think that payments are a very interesting instrument to be linked quite easily to environmental action because they happen frequently. They happen in bite sizes and they scale across the world, right? So um, that's been our thinking around it. Uh, And I think with handprint, of course, they they are looking further into carbon credits as well as as a market to enter. The markets are differently regulated anywhere in the world you go and in a lot of places not regulated at all. So that adds a further layer of global complexity Um, here in, I think, in the EU, to an extent in the UK, the frameworks are clearer. I would say outside of that, not quite the case. Uh, but I think as as we get sharper on it, I would say, uh, you know, no fintech is is too small to start engaging. Um, and, and payments are in that sort of very unique position uh, to really sort of fold this into end consumer action as well.
0: No, I agree. And actually, I love the approach that, you guys taken everything you mentioned about with handprint and i actually think you're right it's that almost sort of like grassroots bottom up change that is you know once that scales that's where we're going to see the real impact
3: can i leave you with a small anecdote so please do when we when we started with handprint about more than a year ago we started planting um, mangroves or reforesting mangroves in in very specific parts of indonesia uh, and we were one of the first you know sort of corporate, uh, I think, sponsors of those projects and, and, and really pushed for uh, for that deep action. Uh, and just a couple of weeks ago, I, I heard that a very rare species of crab called the horseshoe crab, which had almost left that habitat, um, has now started coming back because of the mangrove reforestation. So I, I think, not to divert too much from carbon credits, but I think that sort of human story of how this all plays out in the end, um, it, it was a great way to motivate the team, um, and then I even sort of start to bring that conversation up with customers to, to do a lot more because it almost like brings that thing to life, right?
0: hundred percent. It's such a powerful, and, and look, you're right about sort of motivating teams, right? Because everybody loves a good news story. Everybody loves to see the, the, the sort of benefits of these things. And like you said, it's not just the benefit of the, the, the planting piece, but then it's the indirect benefits around habitats and all of that sort of stuff that you might not necessarily have foreseen. So I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Sophie, one thing I wanted to pick up on was um, Molini's point about, or question or challenge, I guess, around the the sort of effectiveness of carbon credits. I mean, I guess if you're just being lazy and using it as a a substitute for actually sort of lowering lowering emissions and all that sort of stuff, it's not going to work, right?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, coming back to Silvera, that's where they're having an interesting proposition because – Carbon credits, I think, work as a can work as a portfolio of solutions if you really understand the impact that that will have um, and the underlying project. And I think what what's really interesting about Silvera is, and what we really like businesses like this, where you have an evolving ecosystem or industry that lacks um, data and credibility, and that means that a lot of the you know large financial institutions, as we all well know. Um, you know there's a lot higher standard in terms of their ability to adopt these sort of solutions so being that data provider almost like a rating agency in a way is a really powerful um, a business where you could actually benefit from quite a lot of network effects as well very very difficult because as we've seen from credit rating agencies there's what three big ones it's quite a winner takes all market and trust is really really key but I think you know it is a great place to start it generally the you start with the kind of easy wins which is the carbon credits and i believe i'm sure that they will have um, kind of hopes to expand into you know more impactful things as the company grows and scales
0: yeah i'm glad i'm glad you call it out as being really difficult because obviously yeah you're right we've seen the um, the financial ratings agencies we've seen like esg ratings agencies that are you know for stock pickers and all of that sort of stuff for going into like sustainable funds and they're giving sort of their highest uh possible rating to brands like fast fashion like boohoo.com and all of that sort of stuff despite all of the um the the the, the various sort of i suppose things that you would mark them down for so i agree huge opportunity but it, there's a real challenge in terms of delivering this properly and effectively now so what was your thoughts on this one I, uh,
4: I mean, I pretty much agree with what Sophie
0: said, to be honest with you.
4: Um, it, I I mean, to, to a point that you asked, I, you know, I think a lot of people don't put much thought into it and they just kind of do it. And it's a, it's a throwaway kind of gesture. I do feel that is coming under increasing scrutiny and being seen through. So I, I, I do feel momentum is shifting in that respect, but I, I think it will take time to play out if you see what I mean, because, um, I would, I mean, well, look, others, others may disagree, but I would say people kind of looking under the hood and seeing how effective these things are, has only really picked up momentum in the last what 12 to 18 months, something like that. So it's still got quite a way to go. I'm starting slightly hesitant because, you know, I don't want to poo-poo the idea of doing it in principle. It's a it's a great thing to do, but you can see how, um, you know, a lot of it disappears out of black hole and actually isn't that effective. No, exactly. And
3: I think somewhere the KPIs are not that aligned, right? Because you have this global goal and then you almost need to pick up a part of this that, that you feel like you're, you, that's your mission or your fight. Um, and, and, to to your point, Nas, I think you know there are now more and more representatives of ESG in a lot of the corporates that that we we work with or partner with, and they um, I think most of them quite thoughtful about it. But it still I think feels like individual action within within even the context of the corporation because the KPIs are are not quite aligned to uh, to any global mission.
0: Yeah. No, completely agree, completely agree. And look, I think we're talking about sort of like standardization across the board, right, in terms of like how effective this is and how quickly we actually sort of start to drive some real momentum. So look, I think one that, again, we'll continue to keep an eye on, I think, one where we see huge um, opportunity, but again, um, challenges in terms of doing it right. Um, All right, so now it's time for our and finally story, a more offbeat or lighthearted look at something in the news this week. Um, So this one comes from Complex with a headline, Rapper Teaches You How to Commit Wire Fraud on Viral Hit. So rapper Punchmade Dev has a new song and video titled Wire Fraud Tutorial, where he gives listeners step-by-step instructions on committing wire fraud. The video features the US rapper playing the role of a teacher as he explains how to make some quick money all at the expense of a bank. The steps were very detailed, with Punch Man Dev leaving everything on the table if fans wanted to try their hand at the crime. The video reached nearly 800,000 views before being taken down by YouTube, and was circling on Twitter with a staggering 26 million views. At the time of the recording, the track remains available on streaming platforms such as Spotify. Before we give you a taste of Punch Made Dev's track, it's really important to say, like Caps Locks, this is not financial advice. So here's a clip. Listen up, I'm finna show y'all how to hit a bank. Just pay attention, this a quick way to jug in any state. First you wanna get a bank log from a trusted site. Do your research because the information must be right. You gotta be on point, don't be sitting around trying to get high. Hit a big play, don't get booked for a petty ass crime. Do they got Verizon or they work for Sprint? You gotta know that if you wanna hit this lick, you gotta call up to the company and SIM that bitch, so you can get the phone calls and text message that they get. You need that so you can log in with the code. But before you do that, make sure that you don't do this wrong. Don't let me find out that your dumbass should to log in through the phone. You gotta change the location into their home. For that, you're gonna need an RDP server. It should come with their IP. You gotta plug it in the server. This might be a little hard, but it's hard being a worker. The bank'll get a money back, so ain't nobody hurtin'. Good use of dumbass.
2: Dumbass.
4: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I was too busy taking notes. Anyway, sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Come back to us now. Um, Sophie, do you think this is a a bigger crime to financial services or to music? (laughs)
2: that bad uh so i'm
0: gonna vote financial services anyone else i i just it was i don't know maybe i'm getting old it just felt really fast like i'd have to listen to it at like 0.5 speed to actually jot down what he's
4: saying (laughs) to be fair it must be quite hard to do a rap about wire fraud like he would have had to work on it
0: yeah no agree i agree um i guess look not 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 to uh take it back to to too serious a thing but like nas what are the like this this Obviously, is crazy and ridiculous, but obviously at the core of it, there's like wire fraud and sort of educating people on how to do that. Like, could Punch made Dev be in trouble for this? If
4: it was just a normal video with him talking and taking people through wire frauds then sure. I honestly like where the boundary between that and like artistic license and freedom <laughs> of speech is. I honestly don't know, but it again. If you, if you want to commit wire fraud, I uh, don't speak from personal experience, but I'm pretty sure you can find similar things relatively easily. So I suspect it's not as kind of um, like educational as that made out. One thing, I sound like my dad now, but one thing I would just say is I did pick up a line about the bank will get its money back so there's no, no one's hurt. I mean, sure, but it's the classic thing about I don't know motor insurance fraud. Like people will generally pay higher fees or high premiums or whatever. So I'm not sure there is such a thing as a victimless crime in that sense. Uh, but I feel like I'm being very scrooge like for what's a bit of fun. But there we go. It's
2: very
3: very Robin Hood.
0: Yeah, exactly, Malini. One thing. I mean, um, Naz sort of said that. Oh, if you wanna, if you wanna find it, you can, you can find this stuff. I mean. On this, we said that there was 800,000 views before it was taken down by YouTube, 26 million views on Twitter. Do you think there is a like an enormous interest in how to commit wire fraud, or are we just seeing those numbers because it's novelty and it's funny?
3: Yeah, I think if you ask the compliance officer, they'd say absolutely. And I think this is also a really good challenge for, for compliance officers and authorities to, to see that the, the game has changed. I mean, it is absolutely possible to rap about it, whether or not someone could follow those instructions um, and what age group that would be that would be listening and following these instructions. Um, it, it does sort of, you know, it has that scary thought process to it. Um, um, but I think it, it does really um, put that pressure back on, on, on companies to educate. I think just to, to give it that, um, the seriousness that, that that I think that you were trying to, to to not push us too much in the direction of, but um, because that the medium has changed, and people want to see it in the form of a whether it's a rap or a tweet, uh, no one's going to sit through an educational YouTube video on how to protect yourself from wire fraud, but people are going to listen to a rap made about it, and maybe even try it out.
0: Absolutely, and the last thing we want is like. <laughs> TikTok raising a brand new generation of, like, wire fraud specialists. So, no, I completely agree. Um, All right, look, that wraps up this week's new show. Guys, thank you all so much. Um, Let's go around the sort of virtual room. Where can people find out a little bit uh, more about you? Malini, let's start with you.
3: On LinkedIn,
2: (laughs) if that's the appropriate answer. Perfect.
0: (laughs) Definitely an appropriate answer. Um, Sophie, how about you?
2: Also on LinkedIn. You can also find me on Twitter at Sophie Wynwood. If you want to find out more about Anthemis, um, it's anthemis.com. And any awesome fintechs that are looking for PC backing, you can email uh, me at Anthemus.com.
0: Excellent. Naz, how about you?
4: I don't do social media in part because of the nonsense we just heard.
0: Um, so probably my email, nasas 11 Excellent. All right. And as for me, you can find me at rossgallagher07 on Twitter. Um, And thank you very much for listening. Please do join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thanks very much and goodbye.